Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the leapfrogging edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon, and I am sat next to a man who has brought along a Moffat Nathanson research report on T-Mobile Sprint. Um, so, I, uh, Anna Shemansky, welcome. Hello. And Yinka, um, Introduce yourself and explain what you're reading here. Oh, I, well, thank you. Yinka Adiguke, I'm from Quartz. I'm an editor there. I normally cover Africa and developing markets, but uh, today I'm here to talk about um, T-Mobile and Sprint. We I? are. We're going to talk about T-Mobile and Sprint. We're going to talk about Apple, which has announced a $100 billion stock buyback. We are going to talk remittances, which is basically when you pay someone money and they are in a different country, which is much harder than it should be for various good reasons. Um, but Yenka, since you have the um, printed out research report in front of you, maybe you can tell us um, there was a lot of headlines this week about the third and fourth largest cell phone providers in America wanting to merge. What is going on? So this is uh, Sprint, number four, and T-Mobile USA. And I have to be clear, it's T-Mobile USA, not T-Mobile uh, in Europe. So, uh, it, so, the, so if T-Mobile USA merges with Sprint, that creates an American company which is different from the T-Mobile which I see when I roam in Europe. Right, right, which is a German company, as, as we know. So T-Mobile, the T in T-Mobile stands for telecom which stands for deutsche telecom Telecom. and deutsche telecom still owns a majority but not all of t-mobile right and they um yeah so t-mobile's number three uh and sprint's number four and they're merging as we all they have or (laughs) they may not be (laughs) so so t-mobile and sprint like t-mobile has been trying to merge with uncle tom cobley and all for 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 as long as I can remember yep. T-Mobile existing. Yep. Um, I think this is the fourth attempt it's made to merge yes. with Sprint. Um, mm. And then along the way, it definitely tried AT&T. to merge with AT&T. Mm-hmm. And all of these things have been banned by the government, which says 
oi, no, we want more competition. Four is barely enough. Three isn't enough. But this time, I guess fourth time's a charm, something like that? Yeah, that, I mean... <laughs> Even you, 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 you're teasing me about these notes, but even they, these guys uh, at Muffet Nathanson think it's still a 50-50 because when you look at the numbers, uh, the Herfindahl-Hirschman index, <laughs> you know, which you know in a good ideal world would be around 1,800 or something. This, like this is 20, an index of how concentrated, how concentrated, the, market yeah, is, how concentrated yeah. the market is. Right now, it's 2,700. It's uh, way concentrated already, <laughs> already, and they want to make it even more yeah, concentrated. Be, be, uh, I think the estimate is like 3,200. If, if so one yes, of so my favorite things about this merger is that normally when you announce a merger, mm. um, the acquiring company, the stock of that often goes down because mergers are never quite as successful as people think they're going to be. But the stock of the acquiree, the company being bought, nearly always goes up because yeah. it's being bought. It makes sense. Um, in this case, the acquiry is Sprint, and Sprint shares fell by 14% on the announcement of the merger, which kind of gives you an indication of how likely the market thinks this is to happen. Yeah, it's, it's pretty unlikely because not that much has changed since the last time we did this dance. The only thing that's changing is that now it's T-Mobile acquiring Sprint as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, last time it was Sprint wanting to buy T-Mobile, which obviously is completely different. Not, yeah. um, and there's a good, there's a really interesting point about this that by sort of stopping AT and T buying T-Mobile, look at what happened. T-Mobile started to flourish and do really well and got more customers. So actually, if you are the DOJ or FCC or whoever makes these decisions, you're like, well, it, we. We, we stopped you last time and you decided to do it better. Why should we let you let you merge this time? Now, it's a good point that because they've been involved in some sense in this process for so long, they now have history not on their side because their yeah. main arguments are that Sprint is going to be significantly impaired if they're not able to merge. And then one of their other arguments that we'll talk a little bit about, I'm sure, is 5G, investing in 5G. And that was one of the arguments that AT&T also made, saying, essentially, if you don't allow us to merge, we're not going to be able to move forward with 4G technology, which obviously didn't happen. So, um, yeah, Yinka. What is 5G? I feel like this is a bit like blades on a razor blade. Like we had 3G and then we have 4G and we have 5G. I feel like this is this is exactly like Gillette. You know, like we, we're going to just improve, increase yeah. the number of yeah. Gs, and that's somehow better. So I'm gonna I'm gonna somewhat push back on that. 5G is legitimately different in the sense of it's a. In theory, so it's a different part of the spectrum and it has it can potentially have much faster rates, lower latency rates and also much more capacity, which is important because the whole reason people want this is for the Internet of Things and then really sophisticated devices like driverless cars or medical devices. So, okay, so if I'm a car and I need to connect to the internet in order to be able to drive, then that internet connection is going to have to be a pretty fat pipe and pretty reliable. And and, and current cellular data systems are not up to that. But in some kind of amazing future utopia, 5G will be able to provide this. Because it seems to me, I'm, I'm skeptical about this because the trade-off when it comes to data is always that... You can have faster speeds, but when you have faster speeds, you need more cells, in more densely packed, um, and that costs the, and this is the reason they want to merge, that costs a lot of money to build all of those new cell towers and all of this new technology, and the um, 
and the range of those cell towers gets shorter and shorter. So the idea that you're going to be able to cover every street in America with this stuff is ridiculous. I mean, you will get 5G in urban centers, I'm sure. No, this is exactly true, where you're seeing AT&T focusing its resources. It's entirely on dense urban areas for that very reason, because the like millimeter wave spectrum, which is what they're talking about, is very, very fast, but only goes short distances. So the reason that this is important to T-Mobile and Sprint has to do with the fact that they have like a different they have different spectrum networks. So T-Mobile is going to have a much harder time moving forward with 5G if they don't have access to higher spectrums and they are able to get that through Sprint. Granted, they're still not able to get into the millimeter wave, which is what they really want, but it still will help them somewhat. Sprint has a bunch of spectrum, which is going to be helpful for T-Mobile. T-Mobile has a bunch of customer base, which is going to be helpful to Sprint, because if you want to pay for the, I I believe the technical term is gazillion dollars it's going to cost you to build out this 5G network, you need to have like 100 million customers in order to sort of break it up between them. Is that the idea? Yeah, and nobody really thinks that this network is going to be built by T-Mobile and Sprint. The point is that what T-Mobile and Sprint will do is that they're going to be pushing the other they're going to be pushing Verizon and AT&T to move faster. It's, this is what T-Mobile always does, is that they do things on the lower end and then the big players have to respond. So, wait, T-Mobile and Sprint aren't going to build a 5G network? For the entire country, pretty much it's very unlikely. <laughs> but 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 Verizon and AT&T might? In, if we're talking about the entire country, I think that's going to take a long time. But the current infrastructure that we're seeing is through those big players. So, yeah, this is just to go back. So the reason that T-Mobile and Sprint are focusing on 5G is because they want to say this time is different and because they know that this administration is obsessed with made in China 2025. Right. That's and so a really good angle on it. Exactly. So this is the way that they want to appeal to the administration. It's not really because they're going to be the people who are building this out. And 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 it and there does seem to be like this weird subtext of the whole thing, which is that AT and T, um, as we know, wants to buy Time Warner. Um, the Department of Justice is looking very closely at that, and looks like they might want to stop that. And there seems to be a certain amount of political animus towards AT and T, um, maybe because they want to buy CNN, and the president doesn't like CNN, and that somehow in some weird fever dream of a lobbyist somewhere, um, if a merger of T-Mobile and Sprint would be bad for AT&T, then it might be something that the DOJ quite likes. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah, this is... I mean, I think... It's a stretch. It is. is. I I think that the reason most people think this isn't going to happen is not simply because of concentration in the market, the entire market, but specifically in the budget market. Because this is where... T-Mobile and Sprint have kind of, yeah, have been battling it out. And so it's really helped budget consumers. And the fear is that if you join them together and now they're going to be more competitive against Verizon and AT&T, but not necessarily for budget customers. That's one of the biggest concerns. But from a, from a political point of view, do you think this administration cares that much about budget customers in that way? It's it's a good question. I mean, I think it's so tough with this administration because on the one hand, you think, well, they're going to be more business friendly. But then on the other hand, they see it depends on which businesses he Trump happens to like that day. So it's it's a toss up. One of the things which, which astonishes me about America, like the biggest market in the world, which should have the most efficiencies in the world, 
is the cost of things like having a phone um, is just hugely more expensive here than it is in any other similarly developed country, pretty much. And I and that has to be in large part a function of just simple sort of implicit cartels or lack of competition or whatever you call it. You just don't have enough competition or enough regulation or enough people trying to bring the, the price down. And as you say, like prepaid is a little bit cheaper. Well, I mean, but in T-Mobile has has actually done a lot to change the market because they're the ones who push to get rid of two-year contracts. And they're also the ones that push to have unlimited voice data and text, which is actually was a big deal. I mean, Janet Yellen mentioned that as a reason why one, you know, one period CPI didn't increase. So this is this is this is legitimately a big deal. Right. T-Mobile has been a big player. And I think that actually doesn't help them, though, It doesn't here. help their, their, their case. The, the other thing uh, that Sprint might try is to say, well, we, we might go bankrupt. They very well might. Like, I think I was actually pulling up their financial statements this morning, and they're not pretty. They, they, they have way too much debt. So almost all of their operating income goes to service their debt. So this is not in any way a company that is situated to be able to make the type of CapEx investment you would need to compete. So if this doesn't go through, they're going to have a really rough time. So let's just play this out. I mean, you know, if we're going to talk about crazy ideas, what happens if Sprint does file for bankruptcy? Um, You say they have a lot of debt, so presumably they get taken over by the on bondholders, um, the debt holders, and then you get a new sprint which doesn't have debt, and then that's like newly competitive, and that's better for America. It depends on what exactly would happen there, and I, I don't know exactly what. I haven't spent enough time with Sprint to know like what it would look like, whether the because they do have they legitimately do have assets. the The licenses that they have are spectrum, actually yeah. and their valuable. Spectrum is yeah, that's what I mean. Like it's 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 it's. I guess, that, I guess that's the risk, is that... Um, They're more likely to increase prices. Well, in, well in, I was going to say that the price. risk is that the parts are worth more than this. The sum of the parts is worth more than the whole. And then rather than keeping Sprint going and running it, the note holders would just sell off the Spectrum yeah. and the other assets. That, and then yes. you'd still wind up with three three providers. I think that's completely correct. and I And I think that if T-Mobile... If this doesn't happen, I think it's much more likely that T-Mobile is going to be acquired by something like Comcast or Charter because they want to get into the wireless space. And this is T-Mobile's other mm-hmm. argument is that this isn't a game of four players anymore. This is now a game of seven or eight players because you can buy sell service through Comcast now. But that's just like rebranded Verizon, right? I don't entirely buy that. No, it's completely. It's, it's, it's on. Um, it's on Sprint's network, right? The this whole mobile virtual network operator, um, and they've been trying to make this work for again. When I used to cover Comcast, like about. 10, more than 10 years. And it's never <laughs> never worked, never made economic sense. Why would you get the phone off your cable provider? You I, know, it just never well, worked. 18, yeah, Verizon does it. Yeah, and, and I, I do think that a lot of this is T-Mobile trying to come up with justifications. Having said that, I do think that if T-Mobile does not merge, they are going to get acquired. I don't think we're going to continue to have a market where we have an independent T-Mobile and Sprint in the long run. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. 
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. <coughs> okay, enough about mobile phones. Let's talk about mobile phones. <laughs> um, Yinka. Yes. Um, have mobile phones completely revolutionized? I mean, we've talked about this on the show a little bit in the past. Um, the way that in the way that people buy things in East Africa and especially in China is very much on their phones now. It's it's not using plastic cards and it's not using paper money so much. It's just using directly your phones. Um, but let's talk a bit about remittances because that is one part of the payments infrastructure which weirdly doesn't seem to be happening very much on phones even though you'd think it was the obvious thing to happen on phones yeah i mean uh smartphones in particular when we talk about phones have really sort of um and really invigorated the remittances markets really with lots of um of the smaller you know, money transfer operators who now have all these apps which allow you to, you know, hit a button and a couple of you see, numbers you in see, and move I, the money around really quickly. You see, really you quickly. say that and I don't see it. I mean, so Western Union has had an app for a million years and the vast majority of the people who are using Western Union, which is the big 800-pound gorilla of the remittances space, mm -hmm. um, you know, they have bank accounts. It takes them one minute to link their bank accounts on their phone. It's much cheaper for them to spend, to send money if they do that. And yet they don't do it. it they're perfectly happy doing it the old-fashioned way where the person they're sending money to picks up cash at the Western Union agent in their local country. Well, I would imagine part of that is because in, in many countries, there still is primarily a cash-based economy, although that is certainly changing. Yeah, yeah. But for a lot of especially low-income people, they're going to be paying for a lot in cash. So I think it makes perfect sense in that way. A little bit, but uh, yeah. So this is my question for Yinka, is that like I have been reading the future of remittances story <laughs> for like 15 years, if not more, maybe 20 at this point, um, how remittances are really expensive and how they're going to get disrupted and people are going to come in with much cheaper ways of doing it and much more technologically sophisticated ways of doing it and much faster ways of doing it. And it kind of, just, and the market basically just keeps on trundling along and Western Union keeps on dominating the market and what what has really surprised me is not the effect of the introduction of phones or of Bitcoin or of whatever else you want to talk about, but much more the fact that it's had almost no effect. I mean, the, the effect insofar as it exists to me seems like it's been tiny. Now, by what do you mean by no effect, though? Because there there are lots of new players in the market. They're really um, shaking things up. So there's one big new the player. Cost in and the costs. Are, are coming down as well. The cost mm -hmm. of moving money around, and that's a lot to do with the new players that come in, uh, coming into the market. Um, so I would disagree on nearly all of that. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I would say the costs the, have definitely uh, come down, yeah. especially in the the well, parts of the market where it's the highest volume yeah. and slightly lower risk. So okay, so you know, go back fifteen years, and there was a what the the 
biggest, one of the top three, anyway, um, remittance corridors in the world is USA-Mexico. I think it's the biggest, actually. And I I think USA-Mexico is the biggest. And USA-Mexico, about 15 years ago, all of the big American banks kind of simultaneously all decided they were going to start really competing on the USA-Mexico remittances front. The cost of sending money from the USA to Mexico became zero very, very quickly. Everyone offered to do it for free. Um, Citibank was doing it for free. They own Panamax in Mexico. Santander was doing it for free. Um, And, you know, everyone was like, this is going to completely transform remittances because the cost has come down to zero and it used to be expensive and now it's free. It didn't. And um, now, basically, all of the banks have got out of the market now after spending millions of dollars trying to get into it. They all realized that it really wasn't worth it. And they had, it just created a huge amount of regulatory headaches for for them. And and this is like the dirty secret of remittances is the cost of remittances is not the cost of sending money. The cost of remittances is regulation, know your customer. Um, anti-money laundering. And, and of course, anti-money laundering. And especially just dealing with the agents and the last mile stuff at the other end. And so what you wind up with today, 15 years after the cost of sending money to Mexico went down to zero, was is basically Western Union is still dominating the market. And it's maybe 25% cheaper than it was. But it's not there's there's been no obvious massive disruption and when you look at what people are looking for in remittances and what they say they want in remittances you know being cheap is about fourth or fifth on the list it's just not that important to people this is like of, of all the different you know like cutting costs is not something which gives you market share there has been one um big entrant into this market who has successfully entered this market in the past 10, 15 years, TransferWise is now a, a real competitor to, to Western Union. And the interesting thing about TransferWise is they're not really in the remittances market. They're doing developed country to developed country, sort right. of like, I'm, you know, I'm in England and I'm sending money to my friend in America kind of thing. And, um, and they certainly don't use you know, any newfangled Bitcoin-y stuff or anything like that. They're just like, yeah, we'll, you know, we have a pile of money in US and pile of money in the UK and you can take money out of it and it's very fast and easy but that that hasn't I mean like so the, I, the so expensive I, just to finish up the expensive bit of the remittances market is things like US like, like South Africa to Tanzania right, and stuff right, like that exactly. and that hasn't that's been touched that's where I was going so, so much of what you say is right but here's what you're not considering like the particularly the developing markets particularly uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, intra-Africa is yes. crazy expensive. The, the costs are ridiculous. Yes, and they haven't and, come and down. No, but they have been coming down because of the convenience of of apps like World Remit. And I don't know if TransferWise does much business there, but there's several other apps. Um, and um, what happens is it's not, to your point about, it's not just the cost, because sometimes it's about working out, how, you know, if you could do the math on your head and all that stuff. But it's also uh, about convenience. So this is where the smartphones come in. I mean, if you can just hit a button on your phone and literally one of the things, I, I was speaking to the um, CEO of uh, World Remit and we just explaining how the market is changing. He talks a lot about the influence of WhatsApp. Like, you're, you know, you're constantly, like in Africa, if, you, if you're not on WhatsApp, you just might as well just say you're not in touch with anyone. Um, you literally can just be talking to someone and get on the phone and say, oh, I need $20 to fix that thing, that hole in the roof. 
and you can send that $20 right there on your phone. And that has just sort of made it easier for people to send, uh, move money around. So the amounts of money have actually, people are doing it more frequently, the smaller amounts means the market is also, you know, growing quicker. Uh, with more people coming on, I, I don't. I don't think it's that easy. I think, like, you talk to the CEO of World Remit, and he'll tell you inc- it's incredibly easy to like mm. send money via WhatsApp. Well, I, I, well I, try, I try it myself. Near. I do it myself. So, so <laughs> I'm, you know. I'm, I'm curious though, because what you're describing sounds a little bit more like intercountry. So, is that also being used to send? Oh no, this between? is no, this is international. Is it, so this yeah, is international. Yeah, no, no, no one's right. sending twenty dollars. No, no, but, okay, but, 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 but Yanki, you do it yourself from yeah. your US bank yeah. account. And, um, yeah, right. Whereas, and, and the point, and the and, alert and the shows reason, up on the Nigerian bank account within literally within an hour. Right, and the, but the reason um, why the cost of sending money from South Africa to Tanzania is so expensive is precisely because the governments in both countries yes. basically stop you from doing that. And so, and and they have like quiet deals with the banking systems exactly. in both countries, which basically makes that impossible. No, that's totally correct. Totally correct. There, there are monopolies. Well, Western Union has had a monopoly, and uh, the National Post Office offices in those some countries have, have monopolies. But those have started to be loosened up now. Um, you know, obviously, companies like World Remit or others lobby them very hard. They did, certainly did so for in Nigeria. And that and that brought in more players into the market. And could it be that now is for getting a little bit more smartphone penetration? That that could be the thing that really does Chips change it. the market. Yeah, yeah de- almost certainly. Well, I mean, that, that's, that's I feel like we we touched on this the last time you you were here, but this is I think this is like a West Africa East Africa thing, right? That like there's been these feature phone based payment systems in East Africa for what twenty years mm. now, and. And that's just like part of the muscle memory now of how you pay for things in in Kenya. Whereas in Nigeria, because you haven't had that, you can leapfrog straight to the smartphone systems, which are maybe a little bit more fully featured and can do more. uh, You can pay for things more easily. Yeah, I mean, in a strange kind of way, I don't know if it's a leapfrog really, because it's more of a traditional banking infrastructure. It's it's probably kind of behind (laughs) Kenya in a way, because they actually are, you know, you're sending mobile money. It shows up in your M-Pesa account. If you, if that's what if you so choose, uh, with if you send money to a to Nigeria, it shows up in the person's bank account. How how well banked is Nigeria at this point? I don't know the numbers, but it can't be that high. Financial inclusion is not, you know. But they're, you know, they're a good number of banks. But but you were saying that the total amount of remittances to Nigeria is bigger than the country's oil revenue. It, it was last year. And so, so most of that does not go into bank accounts, and it just goes into Western Union um, outlets where people pick it up in cash. Presumably, yeah. And, but a good, a good amount will go to bank, bank accounts too. And I think this is an important point overall in the remittances market, that this is a real market. And so it's a market that is still fairly inefficient. So it, this is where we, yeah, we do need more players because this is a stable source of income for people in a lot of countries. So it is important that we have more companies actually trying to disrupt this area. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is one of the things they're thinking about now because they're looking at it as the movement from an informal sort of method that this thing was like 20, 30 years ago to a more formal part of the economy. And then you start to think about things like, well, if I know this person is going to get $50 or $100 every month, you know, I could, I could, you know, 
uh, so build, uh, build, build, no, build credit on it, right? And 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 more formal kinds of uh, systems around this, you know. And we know about things like diaspora bonds and all that kind of stuff that that can be built once you know how much money is coming into the economy. Because previously it was just, oh well, my auntie is going back, and I'll give her, you know, five hundred dollars, and no one knows, <laughs> you know, you just know that things. Uh, no one knows how much money is in the economy, but. Now you have it going through a, f- a slightly more efficient formal uh, platforms. You can plan around it. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think we probably don't disagree that much. I, I think that the remittances system is actually and more efficient than you give it credit for, that the costs are genuinely high to create that kind of KYC, AML, blah, 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 alphabet soup of regulatory Mm. navigation. I don't think it's that, therefore, ripe for disruption. And I have, as I say, I've heard so many predictions about how this is going to change for so long that I'm naturally skeptical that it will. But I do think that Yinka's right that it's going to become more visible hmm. and that the visibility alone is going to be helpful in terms of national accounts. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, if if I think about a country like Nigeria where, you know, they're very opaque on so many so many things about the economy, but this is one of the areas where the central bank governor looked at the numbers and just went, actually, we, we need to loosen this up. We can't just have Western Union alone having complete monopoly on this market, open it up and more money comes into the economy. And like I said, uh, 22 billion came in 2017 and the oil revenue was something like 20 billion. So, you know, it's not to be sniffed at. <laughs> and I think that, that what your point there is very important because we know that part of the reason, as you were saying, that a lot of smaller players haven't been able to change this market is because there are, is essentially a monopoly yeah, and yeah. it's in a lot of people's interest to maintain it. But now if it's not in their interest because we have better data, that could actually change yeah. things. That's the hope. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, it's been a little while since we talked about Apple mm-hmm. on this here podcast. And, you know, there are podcasts out there which talk about nothing but Apple. But we, um, Apple just had a, another amazing quarter. And as part of its amazing quarter, it announced that not only had it like quietly bought back what $24 billion worth of stock in the previous quarter alone, which is it's a record, which is more than the entire amount of money that gets sent in remittances to Nigeria every year. Um, and they did it in three months. Um, they, they're going to continue that pace for an entire year. Well, I'm not sure they put a time frame on they it, they, it. but they, they said that they're going to, uh, they, they increased their dividend and they said they were going to do this $100 billion stock buyback, which is unprecedented in the history of stock buybacks. No one has ever bought back $100 billion of, of stock. It's kind of mind-bogglingly huge. It's true. I'm, it, one of the numbers, though, that I also think is even more interesting is how much stock they've bought back since 2012. It's like 
it's like 24 percent of their shares. It's huge. Yeah. Which but it makes a lot of sense. So whenever the word stock buyback comes come up, um, people like get friends of mine who are not like, you know, finance geeks are just like normal people and and they come up to me and they're like this is bad right this is this is like um executives manipulating the share price for their own financial end and you know what's bad about this explain to me why this is bad it's not (laughs) i mean the question is is it the most efficient use of their capital could they could they be spending this on um you know improving uh, paying their their workers more, improving benefits. Uh, should they, you know, buy make some strategic acquisitions? Buy Netflix, do something. You know, I mean, it it, it feels sometimes. It, I'm mean, I'm not saying whether it's good or bad, but it just sometimes feels very unexciting. Like you, you, exactly. So, no, well, the amount of money that Netflix has invested in becoming Netflix is less than this, and Apple would quite like to own Netflix. They probably don't want to buying Netflix. But if they'd managed to build that business themselves, that would have been amazing. Instead, they were buying back $200 billion. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Like, since Tim Cook has taken over, R&D has tripled. Yes, $120 there, billion. Yeah. This is not an issue of, well, we could be investing this money in our company in profitable projects, or we could be buying back shares. It's that we have no other profitable NPV positive projects to mm. invest in. That's the issue. And mm. their workers are being helped by this. A, I'm pretty sure a lot of their workers probably got weighted. They also probably have profit sharing and they're paid in, in stock. So this, it's not an issue, which I think it's often portrayed in the media as this idea of like, oh, well, this is companies not investing in their companies, in the economy. And that is absolutely not true. The reason we're having so many more share buybacks than we used to is partly because people are paying fewer dividends, but it's also because the companies that are dominant now that have a higher share of earnings are less capital intensive than they used to be. So they can Mm. generate the same earnings, the same growth with less investment in capital because they're different types of companies. So it doesn't make any sense for them to either just hold on to that cash or to spend it on inefficient things. I do think there is a self-interest thing going on in the management, though. Um, If you are a shareholder, you are roughly, especially if you are a like an insurance company or a pension fund or one or a big like long-term shareholder, you are pretty much agnostic between dividends and share buybacks when it comes to like how that money is returned to shareholders. Um, you get the dividend, you'll probably like reinvest it in the stock. You get the share buyback, it will, you know, help to reduce the amount of shares, increase your ownership stake. Um, it's, it's kind of six of one, half a dozen of the other. Whereas if you are Tim Cook... And you have a bunch of, you know, stock unvested stock which hasn't vested yet, or or, or an employee with with RSUs, um, or you have options or something like that, then you have to wait for that stock to vest, and then when it vests, you get shares which are worth a certain amount of money, and the more those shares are worth, the happier you are. The way you increase the value of those shares is by doing stock buybacks. If you pay a dividend, then those shares are worth less because the cash has gone out already. That's not entirely accurate if you do all the math moving forward. I, I'm i just going to say that the I would argue that the reason we have more management like Apple doing share buybacks is because it gives them a lot more flexibility than a dividend. And it 
doesn't make any sense for them to hold on to this cash. And if you pay out a dividend, if you have a div- and then you change and you say, oh, well, now we're not going to pay as much of the dividend or not going to pay as high of a dividend, the stock. the stock is going to get hit. It's not the same with share buybacks. It's more flexibility for management. It's actually also more flexibility for shareholders. So it's this is not an inefficient use of capital. We don't want a, an economy where we have companies hoarding cash. That's a problem. We want them to be giving it back to shareholders so that they can invest so in other companies. That that is actually the reason for the share buyback is that Apple is no longer hoarding cash after hoarding cash for mm. decades because of the tax reform. The basically Apple has this one-off repatriation. It's taking all of its cash back from Ireland or wherever the hell it was sitting. Well, it was um, sitting in the US. It was just not booked here. And and it's it's bringing it back to the US and it's paying a one-off max, massive tax bill. And then it has all of the cash which it can spend on anything it wants, including in the US. And so now it says, well, now we can do anything. Um, we're going to use it on buying back stock. What they're not going to do... Now, what what's one of the interesting things to me is that the buybacks of the past, part of these $200 billion of buybacks that they've done heretofore, um, was paid for by debt. They borrowed money right. in America and they, and they basically effectively borrowed money against all of that cash that they had offshore and used it to buy back stock. Now that they've brought the cash back, they're paying off their de- no they're not paying off their debt they're just buying back more stuff why are they not paying off their debt because there's no reason to so this is actually another thing we've seen over the past 10 years is that at the same time that we've have increased share buybacks you also do have a lot of companies issuing debt in order to buy back their shares which some might people might say like why are you doing that well you're doing that because you're trying to change the financing of your company you're saying i want to be less reliant on equity financing and a little bit more reliant on debt financing why because rates are incredibly low that's that's a efficient way to manage your assets. But they're not reliant on equity financing. They haven't issued equity in living memory except for to employees. No, but the point is, if you are increasing your debt and you're buying back shares, you are going to be altering the percentage of debt and equity in your capital. Okay, but I guess, okay, let me to just kind of put it into a more familiar context. One of the things that we always tell people, you know, here on Slate Money is that if you have money in a savings account and a bunch of credit card debt, you should pay off your credit cards because that's it's it's a bad idea if you have cash to, you know, to have cash and also have debt. Why does that not apply to Apple? They have cash and they also have debt. Shouldn't they use this cash to pay off that debt? Why why is Apple's state situation different than mine? Because you're not a company that's generating billions and billions of cash every quarter. You can't take the example of what happens with an individual and extend that and say this is what a company should do because it's just completely different. The way that you would, quote unquote, finance yourself as an individual is not in any way what you would do to finance yourself as a company. It's completely I mean, like, different. Both of us have an income. Like, you know, I mean, I feel like there is an analogy here. You know, I have a certain amount of income. I let I. I I, let's say I'm earning more than I'm spending, so I'm making money every month. I also have a pile of cash, and I also have a pile of debt. Should I not, as an individual, use that cash to pay off that debt? And why doesn't that apply to a company? So if I'm a company, and I'm not heavily, heavily indebted, and I'm going to be perhaps taking on more debt and um, having fewer shares outstanding, what's going to happen to my weighted average cost of capital? It's going to go down. So like this is this is this is the issue. This is not... 
in uh, so you're going to have to explain that in English because I no, don't. So, <laughs> sorry. So, so if you're if you if you're looking at the your cost of capital, no, as, I don't like okay, even so more English. I'm sitting here. Pretend I you're have, explaining it to me. Yeah, explain <laughs> it to Dan. Um, you know, I have a monthly income. I'm earning more than I'm spending, so I'm making profits every month. I have cash. I have debt. What is my weighted average cost of capital? So, if I'm a company. No, no. If I'm just me, let's just keep it. On no, I'm going to say it as a as a company because individuals don't have weighted average cost of capital, so th- that's why this is important. Because if I'm a company and I can either finance my activities by having people buy shares, I can have equity, or I can issue debt. People can buy. I but, either. But, but that, I, Apple is not in either situation. It is not financing its activities by issuing equity or by issuing debt. It is profitable. No, no, no. It's it's has a cap structure <laughs> that's how the company quote unquote like finances itself so, yes so, of course what, what, okay, so, okay so, my, let, my, so wait let's just go slowly here because it's really important to understand this what do you mean by finance your activities because it seems to me that if you have a profitable business there's no need for finance it's just making money so apple has assets and those assets equal its liabilities plus its equity. That's It has a capital structure that is a certain percent equity and a certain percent debt. If it earns, and you are correct, Apple is incredibly profitable. So Apple earns, a, it, its operating earnings are huge. It generates a lot of cash. In, exactly. So that income is going to have retained earnings. Those retained earnings now are going to increase its cash. So what is it going to do? Well, it can invest those in CapEx, in cap in investments that are investments that the rate of return you'd make on those investments has to be more than the cost of your capital. Okay. So the point is. I, I still don't know what the cost of my capital is. So the the issue is, as a company, you are financed with debt and equity. That is, that is the structure of your company, and there is a cost to your debt, which you can look at at a publicly traded bonds, and there's a cost of your equity. What's the cost of the equity? So the cost of your equity is a little bit more complicated to calculate. There's this thing called capital asset pricing model, which I can explain if you really want me to. That is based on your beta <laughs> with the market. <laughs> no, it's the it's the risk free rate yeah. plus the beta times equity premium. So equity risk premium. Point is <laughs> your cost of equity is significantly more than your cost of debt. Also, your cost of debt, you have tax benefits. So basically what you're saying is, and this is the difference between a company and an individual, is that an individual doesn't have a cost of equity, but a company does. And so having a bunch of cash lying around, if it didn't have a cost of equity, then it should just pay off the cash. But if you do have a cost of equity, you need, you need, you say you have to pay off the debt. Um, but if you do have a cost of equity, you have to weigh the cost of the debt against the cost of the equity. And in that situation, it might make sense to pay off equity or pay down equity or buy back equity, which is all kind of the same thing. Right. And the difference between an individual and a company is that individuals don't have equity and companies do. One of the many differences. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we've cleared that up. And but so your that, brand is your equity. And that is why, <laughs> and that is why people, if you have cash you should pay down your debt and don't do a stock buyback (laughs) (laughs) let's have a numbers round i think that's enough of (laughs) wonking out to walk you through a discounted cash flow (laughs) exactly it's like cap m oh no (laughs) 
was just waiting for the <laughs> MM <laughs> to come up next. I was like, no, I'm leaving. All right. Uh, Yen, could you have a number? Yes, I'm trying to remember what that number is. It's um, 36,000, uh, which is the number of foreign students in the UK who had their visas revoked uh, because they had um, apparently cheated on uh, or involved in some fraud to do with uh, an English proficiency test. What? Yeah. So, so apparently in the UK, um, to go to a UK British university, you do an English test um, to make sure that you can, uh, you know... Take the classes. Take the classes. Um, and back in 2014... Um, BBC had uh, BBC Panorama uh, news show did an investigation and found out that uh, there was some fraud going on and some people were cheating at this test and getting people to take it for them and this led to all kinds of you know checks and uh, uh, the then found out that many more people were doing this and the Home Office uh, as I said that revoked uh, visas so the reason this number has come up this week is because um, it's been found out the software used by this company ETS um, out of Princeton, New Jersey um, was flawed. It's kind of a voice recognition and, and it kind of didn't work properly and it looked like it looks like a lot of people who were not meant to have uh, been sent back. So basically 36,000 people managed to hack this software and the software company didn't realize it. No, quite the other way around. They did not. They, they didn't. The, the software itself was flawed, right? It, it kind of said, oh yeah, there's two people, these, these are the same people and, and they weren't the same people. They were different people. People who spoke perfect English and had no reason to um, you know, cheat on a test because, you know, journalists went and asked. So, okay, so wait, hang on a sec. So the, the big headline here is that these 36,000 people whose visas have been revoked are actually perfectly good at English, but the British government in its supreme incompetence has cancelled their visas because they thought that they cheated on the test when they hadn't because they were relying on some crappy piece of software from Princeton, New Jersey, which didn't work. You said it so much better than I did. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, you know. And you can guess who was in charge of the home office at the time. <laughs> um, so wait, we, uh, at, at the time of what? Oh, 2014. When in 2014. Happened. Oh, that might Our be one, Theresa May. <laughs> so, yeah. The, the Britain is going down the tubes. My number is 23. <laughs> Um, 23, or rather 23%, is the amount that the headcount of Goldman Sachs went down in London just in 2017. At the end of 2017, there were 23% fewer people working for Goldman Sachs in London than there were at the beginning. And you know what that number is going to continue to go, what that number is going to continue to do going forward. Somewhere else. Many of them are in Frankfurt. Many of them are just like, you know, and they're probably in Princeton, New Jersey or somewhere in New Jersey. But everyone is just leaving the British Isles, um, either because they're getting kicked out by evil home office or because they just can't bear it anymore. Um, Anna, don't go to Britain. What's your number? <laughs> My number is 5.6%. So... 
I promise this is going to be my last Tesla number in a while, but I just had to mention this. So this is the amount that the, the, the this is the percent that their Tesla shares decreased on Thursday. Why? Because Elon Musk had the weirdest earnings call I think I've ever heard. <laughs> well, I um, or read the transcript of. So essentially, he just stopped answering analyst questions and started calling them boring, stupid, boneheaded questions, and then proceeded to spend almost the entire call answering questions from this Tesla fanboy with a YouTube channel who somehow got on this analyst call. It's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And yeah, he he kind of apologized on Twitter for this, but not really. And he was like, this was a stupid question because if they'd read the press release, and it's like, no, that's not how it works, Elon. You have to answer these questions. But the thing which jumped out at me is that this is the same guy who back in, I think it was July last year, went on the record saying, yeah, my stock is totally un- over- overvalued. Yeah, right, and right, like, right. I have no idea why it's so high. And now he's blaming short sellers yes. for like, you know, asking him tough questions. Tesla has moved. And yeah, he, he, the pressure is on. Tesla lost a billion dollars last mm-hmm. quarter, something like that. Yeah, and they don't have any cash. And he's saying they're not going to have to raise capital. And oh, yes, they will. <laughs> <laughs> Reality strikes. So, um yeah, it, Tesla is a little bit like Sprint in that regard. You know, they I, they have to like find some market mechanism to rescue them, or they're just going to wind up getting Sprint taken loses over. less money. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Ford will buy them. Well, they're out of cars now, right? <laughs> yeah, Ford is out of cars. Yeah. Um, okay, so if you are a Slate Plus listener, you get the uh, you get to hear Yinka talking about the Arsenal. Yinka is a uh, you know accomplished financial journalist but mainly he's a soccer fan (laughs) and so i'm going to ask him some questions about english football because i have the opportunity um if you're not a slate plus listener come back next week when we'll talk to you about all manner of awesome other stuff um many thanks to dan schrader for producing keep the emails coming on slate money at slate.com and we will talk to you next week on slate money Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.